G'day, g'day guys. Now before we dive into today's show, I want to let you know that some of you may be aware that over the past eight years, I have built a substantial multifamily real estate portfolio here in the US worth over half a billion dollars. And in that time, my passive investors have received fantastic double digit returns. And now you too can invest directly into my deals for as little as $50,000. So if you're an interested investor, head over to reedgoosens.com to find out more. That's reedgoosens.com. Now back into the show. We'll get the wages back by people actually going back to work. Their growth is just going to make it tougher for those people to actually pay rent because you'll still get the rent inflation, but they're still going to kind of make the same amount. So there'll be a cap that will that will hit. But I should say, you know, the eviction moratorium has kind of held down how much the rents can actually go up because people can't move those people out that aren't paying and then release them up at a, at a higher rate. So even the, the Fed now, if you, like, if you don't listen to what they say, if you actually read their reports, are talking about double the amount of uh, increase over the next year in, in rents once the eviction moratorium lifts. Welcome to Investing in the US, a podcast for real estate investors, business owners, and aspiring entrepreneurs looking to break into the US market. Join Reid as he interviews go-getters, risk-takers, and the best in the business about their journey towards financial freedom and the sheer joy of creating something from nothing. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the US podcast from Los Angeles. I'm your host, Reed Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, I'm glad that you've all tuned in to learn from my incredible guests, and each and every one of them are the cream of the crop here in the United States when it comes to real estate investing, business investing, and entrepreneurship. Each show, I try and tease out their incredible stories of how they have successfully created their businesses here in the US, how they've created financial freedom, massive amounts of cash flow and ultimately create extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Life by design, as I like to say. Hopefully, these guests will inspire all of my cracking listeners, which are you guys, to get off the couch and go and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. Now, as you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, which is you guys, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, if you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a review on iTunes, and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goosens. You can find the show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play, but you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. So head over to reedgoosens.com, click on the video link, and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts where you can see my ugly mug with the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show.
Today on the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Vince Cavilla. Vince has worked in the real estate industry for over 15 years with direct experience in a range of areas from mortgage lending and debt syndication to acquisitions of commercial properties in varying different markets across the United States. And most recently, he has co-owned and operated a very successful residential fix and flip company here in Southern California, which has evolved into his company today, which is called Equity Group Investors. Now, over the last eight years, Vince has established a consistent and solid track record for creating positive returns for his investors in San Diego, in the San Diego area, which is a very tough market to be doing work, doing business, particularly in real estate investing. And his steady methods or his steady methods of and generating profits and revenue have continued to attract and repeat investors into his real estate investment opportunities, which is really, really incredible for him and his business partners. But I'm really excited to have him on the show. So enough out of me. Let's get him out here. G'day, Vince. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, mate? Thank you. Uh, I'm excited to be on here. I've been listening to your podcast. It's one of the best real estate podcasts I've heard. So I'm now a follower. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's a huge, huge accolade. I thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much, my friend. Yeah. Um, well, as, as an avid listener, I'm, I'm very privileged to have you on the show because you also have a wealth of experience and we want to get into that. We're going to talk a little bit about today about how you're developing a fund. But as we do with every show, we start the show with rewind the clock and tell me how you made your first ever dollar as a kid. This is funny. So, you know, in listening to your podcast, I knew you were going to ask that question and I had to call my parents and ask them how that, how that worked out. And, uh, you know, my mom was a, a really good baker and she, uh, later on, like years after this started a, a bakery that did really well that funded my dad buying real estate. But, um, you know, at every holiday, me and my brothers and my sister uh, would bake with her. And, uh, you know, so we learned how to do that really well when we were young. And we lived across the street from a, a junior college. And at one point, there was a ton of construction crew repaving the, the whole parking lot. And, you know, they wanted to get it done fast. So they had a ton of people out there. And so we decided to cook up a bunch of baked goods, you know, brownies and chocolate chip cookies and all that stuff, and then bring it out there with water and sell it to the whole construction crew. And we actually uh, did pretty well, uh, you know, selling to all the, all these people. We made quite a bit of money for, you know, as a young kid, quite a bit of money. And awesome you know, the funny thing is, is you, you have no like break even your parents fund the, all the, all the, you know, all the ingredients or whatever. But the, I think the funnier part of this story is, you know, they said that I had that money for a little while and somehow I knew what a bond was uh, at that young age. I was like nine or 10. I think the only thing that we could come up with is that my grandpa was also an entrepreneur he owned a bunch of real estate and had a couple companies and, you know, he owned a bunch of bonds. So we figured I probably learned it from him. And my mom took me into the Bank, America, Bank of America in uh, Saratoga because I wanted to buy the bond. And I asked the teller, I was like, uh, I want to buy a bond. She's like, well, you're about $900 short for that, that bond. And she's like, you don't want to buy that anyways because, you know, it's kind of a boring investment. And I think it's funny now, you know, knowing what I know about the financial markets, that was like nine or 10 years into a 40 year bull market in bonds. Um, <laughs> but right around that, that same time, you know, uh, a couple of years later, I started painting rentals with my dad and, 
actually my grandpa had been developing apartments and some medical office at that time. And he uh, told me real estate's the best investment you can make. And, you know, then my dad, a few years later, he was developing single family uh, and he had some rentals and he told me the same thing. And so I kind of knew that's what I wanted to go into. And I came out of college right into mortgages and I had a couple good years and, and then 2008 hit and those two experiences, you know, my family tell me that real estate's the best investment you can make. And then coming out right into uh, 2008, like so many others, it influenced a lot of this, the things that I do now with like risk and reward and um, you know, how I underwrite, uh, I do do it a little bit different, which would probably be one of the more valuable things for your listeners later on in the podcast. Awesome. Well, mate, that's yeah. a, it's an incredible story. And, and clearly your, you, I think you mentioned your uncle rubbed off on you at an early age to, to, to want you to go into bonds. But as a nine-year-old, I, I don't think, I don't think I knew what a, what a bond was at nine years of age. So, you know, just buying a, a bicycle or a skateboard was, was probably what I'm saving up for. But that's awesome, mate. Really, really incredible story. So, so walk us through the, 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 the path into real estate, you mentioned that you'd had, you've had a varying array of, of backgrounds and experiences in the different real estate sectors, but did, did you just naturally fall into it or, or what, what was the impetus to get involved in it? Or was it from your parents telling you, you always got to get involved in real estate? Yeah. It, so it was my, you know, actually going back to my great grandpa, he bought his first piece of land in 1906 in the Bay area and everybody's kind of had this, um, you know, a little bit of a real estate background. They're all entrepreneurs, not in, not in real estate. I mean, like my family owns a, a winery, which has a really long backstory going back to the, you know, prohibition and depression. But, um, you know, I, they all had real estate and, they, and the, you know, my grandpa and my dad telling me that, that early, I knew exactly what I wanted to do coming out of college. And I went into mortgages, but you know, I didn't know what I was looking at now. And maybe a lot of other people didn't, uh, didn't know back then either, but you know, these option arms and, and, you know, like two year fixed loans with three year prepays, I actually left the mortgage industry, uh, a little bit before 2007. So I left early and I went and actually bartended and I thought it was the worst, you know, decision of my life. But, um, and, you know, the first part of my career kind of was like a roller coaster in real estate, which served me later. But, you know, looking back on it now, I actually, I can't remember where I found the term, but I call it JOMO, like joy of missing out because I left the mortgage industry and uh, I was bartending and I actually met my, you know, my senior in commercial real estate while I was bartending. He came into the bar. He actually had met my girlfriend, which was his neighbor or yeah. And he then ended up hiring me and I sold single tenant net lease and office industrial. And when I was in the commercial space, you know, it was probably cause it was after 2008, but at a certain point I looked around and, you know, not many people own real estate in, in my office. And I knew I always wanted to own. And I was like, maybe this isn't the right spot for me. And so I actually left and then went into, you know, buying distressed debt in private equity in these large pools, which was a really fun part of my career. The owner of that company was a, a great mentor. He kind of like, there's always the 
way to make a deal. There was always a price for it and always a structure to make deals. And I learned a ton from him, but you know, as I said, it was, it was kind of a roller coaster. That company ended up changing directions, firing, you know, 95% of their staff. And, you know, the next thing that I did was go into work for a residential developer and a fix and flip company. And that's when everything kind of like came together and gelled. And, you know, all these different avenues that I'd worked in, uh, in the past, I even did some leasing, uh, back then as well, but like all these different areas of real estate that I worked in started to gel and all these different like ways to put deals together kind of gelled. And I ended up breaking like all the sales records for, for that company. And then, you know, the growth kind of like stagnated a bit and that's when I jumped out and, uh, started my own, uh, company. And, you know, there's, as with any business, there's, there was a roller coaster ride in there, you know, I had a partner for a while and he didn't ended up panning out. He did some things that uh, probably weren't the best for the company. And, but, you know, going through the roller coaster early in my career makes you super resourceful. And so when I split with that partner, I had to like fire all the contractors off all the jobs that we had and, you know, take them all over and, and finish, finish them out. And some of these things that I was talking about that I learned in 2008 and after in the way I purchased was what protected me. And I actually was able to come out of that with no investors losing money, even though he's doing some really shady stuff. And, uh, you know, then it was easy once I protected all of them and I was super open with them, you know, I want them to trust me as, as investors. So, uh, I told them everything that was going on, you know, like some of the construction, you know, overpayments and not knowing where the money was going, all, all that type of stuff. And uh, so once I came out of it, they were all like, well, you just protected us through something like that, which is huge. We all want to go bigger. So it allowed me to, you know, kind of catapult my, my business to where I am now, like tenfold better with better asset managers and project managers and, you know, a uh, team of operations and all that. That's what allowed me to then go to this fund structure that we're going to. That's awesome. It's, it's such a varying uh, array of experiences, which I think is really important for the listeners to understand because there's not just one path to starting a business, right? You're, you're you look relatively young, you know, you, you don't, you don't have gray hair, you know, you, you, you've, you've, you've been around, the, the the street a few times, right around the block a few times because you had to, right? You had to just put, you know, you had to put food on the table. You had to keep a roof over your head. And for every time you've had to transition jobs through probably no fault of your own, you're saying that, you know, the company, the mortgage company changed directions. You always had to keep moving forward and, and, and keep picking up skill sets. And I think that's really, really important for those people listening out there when you're getting started in real estate to, to not poo-poo different opportunities to learn, and that's that. I think that's a, that's that's an incredible accolade to you. Because now you're at a point where you have the confidence. You've been through a couple of ups and downs to say I'm going to run my business differently because I've I've been through some 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 bad experiences. But but, but one of the questions that comes up is I mentioned San Diego earlier. How are you doing deals in San Diego in this market right now? I mean, uh, so th this actually gets into you know like when when 2008 happened. That was a really like 
traumatic time in real estate for a lot of people. And I heard somebody on one of your other podcasts talking about how you, you like can't let fear uh, drive you. If you're doing that, then it, um, you know, is a problem and it's going to limit your, your growth and in, in, in what you do in, in business. And for a while it actually did. So I became like a voracious reader and studier of the, of the markets. And it was like a few years after 2008, I started, uh, I read Nassim Taleb and I started experimenting with uh, tail risk hedging, which is a thing in the options market. But, you know, you put these little tiny bets on, so it limits your, your profit a bit. But when something like COVID happens, it pays off multiple, you know, like, 20x 30x times your investment and it can cover your losses and but in learning how to do the option stuff you know you kind of meander to some of these other things like institutional macro which is something that i use now in my business that protects me and you know i like to challenge some of the narratives within our real estate space and you know the narratives that i like to challenge are everybody everybody you ever talk to ever always says we buy value add assets in great locations and uh you know real estate's local but it's these macro moves like 2008 covid uh even 2018 there was a interest rate spike that took out a lot of funds in my market and those are all macro moves and so i kind of think you need to trickle from macro down to the micro and i can tell you why that's in, important if uh, you want to get yeah, into no, that let's let, let's, take, let's get into it because i think you bring up a very good point so many people including myself like i, I invest in texas right i live in los angeles oh, yeah. uh, and I'm, i also look at deals in other parts of the country i'm not i'm not in that market right i don't buy i don't buy my backyard i'd love to buy in downtown Los Angeles, but it's just too expensive, right? Yeah. So I'd love you to give me your two cents on the macro tripling, uh, dribbling down into the, the micro in terms of real estate is local and, and, and why that is so important in your business when you're buying that, as you said, well-positioned well assets that have a ton of value add. Yeah. And this, this will lead back to your question of how I find the, the profitable deals in uh, San Diego, you know, so you start with the macro and you want to know, like, are you in stagflation? Are you in real inflation? Are you in like a Goldilocks or are you going into deflation? And contrary, you know, in studying this stuff, contrary to beliefs, everybody calls COVID a black swan. It actually, uh, if you look at Nassim Taleb, who coined the term, he says it wasn't. And it's because he's a student of Mandelbrot and the things like copper, you know, the commodities, the gold. dollar, gold, yeah, the treasury market, they were all signaling that this sell-off was going to come. You didn't know it was going to be COVID, but is all signaling that it was uh, going to come. So you start with that, like, you know, for right now, you know, in the next few quarters, it's starting to become known, but we're going to go into stagflation. You know, you hear the Fed talking about how it's transitory inflation and all this, all this stuff, but then you look at their projections and there's no transitory part about it. Their, their, their inflation just keeps on, keeps on going for the next few quarters. So uh, once you and, know what, and, and what, so just to kick off, what's the difference yeah. between, just with listeners, difference between stagflation and inflation. So you sta so, you're stagnant in one high position of inflation. Is that correct? So it's uh, when you have inflation, 
but you're, you're stagnating on like growth and like wages and mm. like GDP and stuff like that. So it's kind of a, a funky market. And usually so it's it doesn't infla- have- it's inflation being high, but stagnant on your GDP and your, your, your wage growth. Is that correct? Yeah. And growth. Yeah. Growth. And you know, usually it's a, it's a, a tougher market than, than currently the, uh, but the fed is actually manipulating the treasury markets. I mean, they, are kind of messing with the CFTCs and options, uh, futures and options market on the treasuries, which I think is probably too technical for, for <laughs> this conversation. But uh, you just know that like when they, when they limit that, they're the only people who can do that legally. And uh, it uh, manipulates the way the, the interest rates move. Mm-hmm. But any, anyway, so, you know, we're going into stagflation. The next, the next level down, why I challenge people on the value add assets. If you look at some, you know, Zell said this first about New York. And then, you know, I talked to a guy at an invite only fund conference uh, who was a land kicker who sold to all the large developers. And he said that, that it was going on across the Pacific North, Northwest. But I'm going to talk about San Diego since 2008, there's been inflation in building supply. And a lot of the developers went, went out and the ones that are left, they're seeing this inflation in building supply. They're like, how do I make my margins? So everybody built the top end of the market. If you look at their residential all the way up until COVID, until, you know, the Fed started buying the MBS market, you know, the top markets like Rancho Santa Fe and San Diego is probably like the most affluent uh, zip code. In, in this market and it had 13.2 months of inventory because people mm-hmm. were building out there and nobody is buying. And then La Jolla and, you know, other areas like that, above a million, there were six months of inventory and below a million, there was 1.8. So that's like an extreme buyer's market and an extreme seller's market. And then you can go over to something like the, the you know, apartments and you could see like, say on CoStar Analytics that, you know, the, the, the top tier markets, there's like 6,200 deliveries. And then you go down the next tier, there's like 450. And then you go down to the next tier and there's like 14, you know, at the bottom end of the market. So everybody's building into the top end of the market. And I'm like, that's why I asked, or I say the value add part is like, if you're buying value add where everybody else is delivering their, their inventory, is it really value add? You know, are you getting it cheap enough to, offset that supply that's the wave that's coming. For those of you who are interested in staying up to date with all the latest happenings in my business, or to learn more about passively investing directly into my multifamily value-add deals, then head over to reedgoosens.com and sign up for my monthly newsletter. By signing up, you'll automatically be notified about my new up-and-coming investment opportunities. You'll be able to stay up to date with all the latest real estate news here in the United States and much, much more. So head over to reedgoosens.com and sign up today. Now, back into the show. And and I just want to jump in there because it's a very interesting point you bring up because of how frothy I'm seeing, like just in markets I know other investors are in, in, like Phoenix, for example, 1970s assets going for over 200K a door, right? Yes. And, and, And that to me just is is nuts, right? I mean, I know, and this is for my listeners, I know that if I buy something at 200K a door, I need to get a 50% growth on that value 
to, to make a 15% IRR to my investors, which means I need to sell it for 300K a door in three to five years time. Do I believe I can do that? Now, we're, you know, the rule of thumb has always been 250K a door, give or take, you know, for a potent, for, for a wrap style product, depending on you know, your market, right? Maybe a little bit less for garden style, maybe like 170 to 200 if you've got all land all in. In coastal markets, it's obviously a little different, but I'm talking about interiors. So it's very interesting you bring that because I'm, I'm struggling with the exact same thing. And a lot of people are when they're penciling deals in today's market where these, these obsolescent assets are now trading for just shy of what it takes to replace them, right? Well, so like, you know, you're not going to scrape the dirt and then build again, right? You're going to, you have to keep going. Like you, people still need a roof over their head. So it's, it's super interesting. Yeah. And, and so then, you know, the, the next tier down is like, I mean, so at first I think I should say that like, I didn't have this all dialed from, from the start, you know, a lot of you kind of like fire yourself from, mm -hmm. from jobs as you, as you grow your business. And, you know, you might be, uh, researching the entitlement, you might be researching the market at the, at the start. Now I have, you know, quants that mar map the market for me. I have people who are really professional in, uh, entitlement that have been doing it for like 40 years. They kind of keep me ahead of the curve. And so once you see that everybody's like 93% of the market is building rentals into the high end, you're like, how can I create inventory at the low end where nobody's building and that's where you're going to see the highest growth because there's no inventory. Mm -hmm. And you also hear things like Biden talking about how they're going to incentivize first time home buyers now and they're incentivizing into no inventory or, uh, you know, the housing affordability crisis that's on the low end. That's not on the, the high end with the price agnostic, uh, right. buyers. And so you have to then go to, you know, like zoning and entitlement, what's going on on there. Like San Diego's led the way in, uh, for California in, you know, making it easier to build ADUs. But I always think that. And ADUs just for the, for, for the, sorry to cut you off. It's okay. Accessible dwelling units for, for those people who just a granny flat in the back of your house. So you have extra land you can, you can build on, but keep going. Yeah. And so they're exactly, and they're, and they're, they're leading the way on making uh, that easier. And I, but I always think you have to like go one step above, uh, above like what everybody's doing and you have to get into it, you know, go to lunch with your guy who does entitlements and find the, the, you know, things that nobody are looking at with parking or, or whatever that are going to make it easier for you to actually easier, cheaper and faster to get through like the city to then create your margin if you're going to build into that low end with these high, you know, building costs or even like, I mean, something that I've done recently is, you know, a lot of mom and pop retailers are, are hurting in these, these little buildings in San Diego are really easy to uh, entitle if you change them over. And because they're hurting, they're fire sailing it low enough that you can actually change the use. And so, you know, like ADUs, change of use. And then, you know, within, you know, within the residential side on the, on the fix and flip stuff that I, that I do, I mean, this, I'm not sure this is very nice to say, but I mean, most, you know, like the top, like 5% of the agents make, you know, 90% of the money or whatever the statistic is. Yep. And the rest of them, 
maybe aren't necessarily as good at uh, pricing and, and putting the correct information into their listing. And if you do a little extra work, you can find these deals that, uh, you know, people price wrong. And, and that actually goes back to the options thing. You know, when you're, when you're trading options, you're looking for price inefficiencies uh, using math. And the guys that I follow use something called fractals. But again, that's probably above where, where, what we're talking about. The, the point is that they look for price inefficiencies. And, and that's what you're kind of doing in the market. Since you know that everybody's building the top end, most people that claim they do macro are just like listening to the Fed or something. You know, you need the you need these processes and systems in place to actually go find these price inefficiencies in the market to then outperform. And and as you asked, like now that I laid it out there, that's kind of how I've still been able to operate within the San Diego market. And I kind of sure. having multiple acquisition strategies is beneficial depending on where you are at macro and where you are as you trickle down from, you know, micro at the, at the whole market level to micro in you know, say La Jolla or Mm -hmm. city Heights or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of my, my process. No, that's great. And you bring up some really, some good information and tidbits there, but I want to challenge you. What's, what's the, you know, building on mass, right? And and you mentioned earlier stagflation. The biggest thing that I think has a, and I, you know, I'm getting into it. Things are going, inflation is going up, cost of construction is going up, but wages are staying stagnant. So people are people are not getting paid enough. How are they going to go afford the, the new homes, right? And that's where the, the rent is. The renting comes in, right? They still need to rent. Well, rent's going up, right? Well, if their wages ain't keeping up, how's the rent? You know. How are they going to afford the rent? So this is, is it's very cyclical. So I want to I want to challenge you. If you've got high cost of building, rents aren't going. Sorry, wages aren't going anywhere or very stagnant. But yet everything's costing more. Then then what what's the solution here? So uh, I mean, let's let's solve all the world problems today. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I don't think this is necessarily accessible to to most. But the the easiest thing to do in that situation is is by notes and we haven't seen you know because the you know government's allowing the banks to hold a lot of these uh distressed notes off balance sheet and you know kind of recreate extend and pretend that we did in 2008 with like fdic loss share and um you know tarp and things like that uh we haven't seen that wave that's actually the best thing to go after if, if that distress wave ever actually comes i i think they'll just keep pushing it like 2008 for five years until the values come back but mm. you're still you're still going to get an inflation on the asset especially with them holding rates so so low and manipulating kind of the treasury treasury markets not putting out as many so at auction you know they kind of get still get bid up um on on the on the bond price and the rate stays low um, but you're exactly, you're exactly right. The, in this goes into the, the K shaped dynamic of, of the recovery. They're showing income growth, but they're also, uh, it's because the bottom earners fell out. Now they're returning. And so the, the wages are going to come back down. And so you kind of have to buy, buy the assets, do the value add, and and wait for the the inflation to catch into true inflation, which will happen later on down down the road. When do but, you think? 
so i mean if we if we if you want to get into it there's something called uh base effects and rate of change and base effects and rate of change are, are almost like comping property and so we're going to get kind of stagflate till second quarter of next year but you know just like comp and property second quarter of next year we're going to be comping against this second quarter which mm-hmm. was the highest like blowout numbers that we've ever seen in history because we printed so so much money so we're going to get kind of like a deflationary piece in that and that's when we'll take hold into to, into true inflation after the deflationary move and so you know in looking at these things you can kind of um see where to sit now and then when to start selling a a few of your assets to to build up cash and then when when to buy again but as far as what you're saying about the the wages so right right now we're already seeing some some uh inflation in in the rents you know what I mean? And whether people can huge, like yeah. ridiculous. I, 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 I'll, just, I'll just jump in here and say on my portfolio, I do, I'm literally doing nothing, turning the unit and getting 300 bucks where rewind a year ago, I'm getting in, in some of my San Antonio properties, like putting in 70,000, $7,500, you know, putting in you know, into a unit and this is on 150 and squeezing maybe 125. And all of a sudden a year later, two years later, it's just like I, I blink and, it goes up in rent. I'm like, what is going on? <laughs> so, so yeah, so it's these inflation numbers, you know, like we are sitting at like 2% inflation this whole cycle. And then now the numbers that are coming out are like four and a half to five and a half for inflation. That's a huge difference. Plus Massive. we're getting, we're getting people returning to work so they can actually pay those, you know, cause now they're taking, you know, 20, I think it's, if I remember correctly, like 26 states gave back the money that was giving to, they're giving the extra unemployment. So that's forcing everybody back to work. So we'll get the wages back by people actually going back to work. Their growth is just going to make it tougher for those people to actually pay rent because you'll still get the rent inflation, but they're still going to kind of make the same amount. So there'll be a cap that will, that will hit. But I should say, you know, the eviction moratorium has kind of held down how much the rents can actually go up because people can't move those people out that aren't paying and then release them up at a, at a higher rate. So even the, the Fed now, if you like, if you don't listen to what they say, if you actually read their reports, are talking about double the amount of uh, increase over the next year in in rents once the eviction moratorium lifts which will have like one of the biggest pieces of the inflation number is housing and and rentals which will have a even greater effect like i I was saying earlier in our conversation it's not transitory and these are the reasons like as the eviction moratorium lifts we get this rent growth we're going to get more inflation because that's a huge part of the inflation number Cool. Yeah. Um, so now let's talk about you, you, you're raising a fund, right? Yeah. And how are you going about raising a fund and, and how much are you trying to raise right now? Uh, we're trying to raise uh, 50 million and it's kind of exciting because, you know, I got some of the, you know, from doing this and having like good returns and things like I've become kind of known in, in my in sub market. And 
so like a bunch of people, once I was doing this want, you know, some of the best people in Southern California are, are like, Oh, we want to jump on board and let's do this. And so I'm going to give them, uh, some equity and there's, you know, some more interesting things that you can do with like controlling risk with, within a, within a fund. And if you listen to like, you know, Michael Milken or, um, you know, Howard Marks or, you know, Carl Icahn, they, they talk about how like the, you know, length of term of your, of your fund and how it can protect you or how you use debt within the fund, uh, how that can protect you. And, you know, a lot of this macro stuff that we're talking about can then, you know, like as you're, as you're buying an asset, you go from the micro and you trickle up. And as you're portfolio, doing portfolio management, you go from the macro and trickle down to the, to the submarkets to which assets you want to like keep and sell off and uh, depending on where you are in, in the market. So, um, you know, one of the most fun things I think in real estate is being able to be creative and kind of, um, learn and like grow. And, you know, this is my next stage of growth and how, uh, I can be a little bit more creative in, in how I use debt and in capital to go a little bit bigger and have a, you know, not only are these people really good at what they do that are coming on board, they're actually really cool people as well that I think would be fun to work with. And that's awesome. something that your previous guest, Jason Truro, you know, he's my CEO, CEO, and he always talks about, about that, like building the team from the ground up to be, be strong. Yeah, no, I completely agree. What's uh, with the, with the, with the fund, are you raising that from institutions or are you raising that from, from, you know, private investors or a little bit of both? Uh, a little bit of both. I, I don't think, um, you know, like this is something that I did when I first started, first started raising. I think I was like, Oh, you got to have 50 million and just like jump in. But now you kind of like, you know, raise like five and start turning it. And then you jump up, you know, from like maybe accredited friends and family to accredited, you know, mm -hmm. within, within the, the GP. And then you jump up to maybe like the institutional guys uh, in the, in the LP, once you have, you know, quite a few assets, they're performing, performing well. So it'd probably be like progressions, you know? And I think, I think that's a good lesson anytime in business, you know, like don't build it up too big in your head, like take those small steps of like doing one deal and then doing three and then doing 10, you know, type of, type of thing. I love that. No, I completely agree with that. I remember my first deal, it was like, it was only a small triplex, but, uh, and I talk about yeah. this a lot on, on, on different podcasts that I get interviewed on. This was like nearly 10 years ago and you don't get to deal number 10 without doing deal number one. And if you want to go raise a fund, like I'm even thinking about raising a fund, right. And yeah. I'd love to talk to you offline about what you're doing and how you go For about sure. doing it. But it's, it's like, Oh God, I want to raise $50 million. Where do I start? Do I just go, open, just, just start going advertising. Like, but you, it's to your point. It's like you got to go raise five and then you, you raise another seven on top of that and you raise another 10 and it's slowly building on top of that. And that work, that money's going to work as you're rolling it out. So, um, yeah. And so, you, even, so, you even have like a, you know, like a two year raise period, you know, and then like a five year deployment period and roll up. And during that two years, you're going to be deploying and then pulling in more and then deploying and pulling in more. And, and, you know, there's, um, subscription loans and things that you can do when, once you have the committed capital before you pull it in to, you know, see the, the, the money's ready immediately to buy the deal. And then you pull in the subscription. Um, 
there's a lot of, uh, of interesting things that you can do within uh, a fund. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Mate. Well, look, um, look, as we come to the end, uh, end of every show, I like to ask you to dive into the top five investing tips. You ready to get into it? Sure. Mate, what is the number one habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? I'd say if you listen to Richard Branson, he's like, how do you be more productive? And he said, work out. And I think that's a huge one for mindset and, er and everything. It makes you more productive over the day. Uh, reading and time blocking are, mm -hmm. are a couple others. And then, um, you know, obviously like building systems within your company is a, is a huge one. So you can free up your time and, you know, taking breaks is important. Once you have the systems in place, taking breaks, so you actually can re-up your energy of your mind to, to go after this stuff is important as well. 100% completely yeah. agree. Uh, question number two is who's the most influential person in your career? So there's so many. Um, as far as like people I don't know and like books that I've read, it's probably Sam Zell and Nassim Taleb. Um, people that I'm closer to that kind of influences this, this macro stuff. There's a team at Hedgeye that's really amazing. Keith McCullough and Josh Steiner are um, just there. They know this stuff far superior to what I'm telling you here on, on this podcast. And they influence a lot of my investment decisions as well. But the most influential as of recent time was your previous podcast guest uh, that I'm closest to, which is Jason True. And, you know, he's kind of like the CEO whisperer. Um, he either deals with startups or he deals with, you know, like billion dollar companies fixing their teams and things. And, you know, uh, from like psychology to, um, you know, how to build a good team, uh, everything. He's, he's kind of like catapulted me to the next level. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. I, I remember Jason being on the show. It was actually about a good, good year and a half ago now. So, um, yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's a small world once you start talking to people in this. Industry. Yeah. So it's awesome stuff. Uh, question number three is what's the most influential tool in your business? And when I say tool, it could be a physical tool, like a, you know, a journal, or it could be a piece of software that you can't run the business without. What is it? I would say it's those, those, uh, quants at hedge. Uh, yeah. The, and, and you're not going to start there. Like I said, you got to learn about it first and then kind of jump up levels. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, kind of blessed now to ha be able to have them be part of my team. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, question number four in one sentence, what has been the biggest failure or mistake that you made in your career? And what'd you learn from that failure or mistake? Uh, partnering with the, with the wrong person and, mm. you know, kind of having that and he was a friend too. So, it, it, you know, I probably let it go on a little longer than I should have. Cause I knew him for like 10 years, uh, prior, but you know, once you learn, once you get out of that, you, it, it kind of catapults you, your growth is, is well. And like, you learn like what what to what values to look for in a partner or in employees um and i think you know team building and who you got on the bus as they say in good to great is like the most in, important thing you can uh, have in your business it can either make you crazy happy and successful or it can make you uh in the living hell exactly <laughs> yeah <laughs> i couldn't agree more that your team is so important when you surround yourself with and and i like what you said earlier and i'll, I'll mention this in the end but but how you 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 go about doing things in your business but 
you you know it's like a job, but then you fire yourself from that because you're starting to grow and you you, you bring people in to, to 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 do the asset management or the underwriting or whatever it might be. So yeah, yeah bloody bloody love it, mate. Question number five is where can people reach you to continue the conversation? They want to be in your sphere. Where do they go? Uh, I'm not that much on social media, but you can find me on LinkedIn, um, Vince Cavilia, uh, as well as uh, equitygroupinvestors.com is another another place. And that's probably the two spots to reach out. Awesome, man. Well, look, I want to thank you so much for jumping on today's show. Some things I took away from today, well, I think it was just your, your really deep knowledge about talking about a stagnation, uh, you know, not inflation and where we're going. Uh, I also think how you've use your ability to have different jobs or careers as you, but, but, but always keep, you always keep picking up information and sharpening your tools as you went through that transition in your early career, which has helped you put on you on the right path today with your business. And that's so important for so many people out there. I mentioned that earlier in the show that don't think of a job as a bore Think of it as something you can learn a skill through and you've done exactly that and you've now applied this in so many different ways that you look at markets, where you look at deals, how you look at valuation, how you look at inflation versus deflation versus, you know, Goldilocks versus, you know, all the things that we've been talking about. And it's put you in a really good position because of that very well-versed background and array of experiences to, to be a really good business leader and to go out and find opportunities. And I think the last thing I took away was from is surrounding yourself with people that you, you, you may not be able to do it. Like you're starting your fund. So bring on the right people who know how to do it. So you can be successful. Don't think you can do it all by yourself. I think that's uh, super important. So to leave anything out. No, I think you nailed it there. And, you know, uh, just to add to that, like, doing well isn't normally when you learn the most. Right. And, and yes. also too, like, um, this is something that Jason told me too, is like, uh, as you go through your career, these ups and downs, uh, all you want to do with your new skill set is shorten them. Mm. And, and, you know, like uh, from going on up and down in the earlier part of my career, once I split with that partner and had a, a really rough time, I, I shortened that window, compressed it a lot. And I think, those hard times are what you learn most from. 100%. 100% yeah. Man. Look, buddy, we want to thank you so much for jumping on the show. Enjoy San Diego and we will catch up very, very soon. Thank you so much. Well, they have another cracking episode jam with some incredible advice from Vince. Remember, if you do want to check him out, head over to LinkedIn and type in his name. It's Vince. Caviglia, so it's spelled with, with it's spelled with a G, but it's silent. C A V I G L I A. So Vince Caviglia, and check out what he's doing. He's doing some incredible stuff. Uh, he, he's really knowledgeable about all the different market types uh, and how that affects both macro and microeconomics in certain locations around the United States. Uh, wealth of knowledge. Really implore you guys to get reach out to him if you want to be in his circle a little bit more. Uh, I want to thank you all again for taking some time out of your day to tune in to continue to grow your financial IQ because that's what we're all about here on the show. And remember, if you do want to jump on the newsletter and find out all about our latest investments, head over to readgoosens.com and join the newsletter. Jump on a scheduled call with me. And if you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give it a five-star review on iTunes. And we're going to do it all again next week. So remember, be bold, be brave, and go give life a crack. Mm-hmm.